Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we are reviewing The Lessons of History by Will and Arielle Durant. Uh, the celebrated collection of essays compiling over 5,000 years of history into two of the greatest thinkers of our time. So, they won the Pulitzer Prize. Not sure what that is, but it sounds pretty good. What, what prize was it? Pulitzer. Anyway, but this, uh, this book <laughs> you was... you Pulitzer? Yeah. Man, that's a big prize. Is it? It's like the best book in the world for that year, yeah. Oh, wow. Holy shit. So, yeah, it's a big one. Recommended by Ray Dalio. Not to us personally, but <laughs> <laughs> but I heard that's him recommended it to someone else on another podcast. So, <laughs> we're doing it. Mate, well, history is pretty big, man. There's a lot of shit that's happened in the in the past before we before we got here. And often, I think people just neglect it or don't look at it or we just, you know, read the textbooks in school about the the facts and figures of various different wars and memorize those things and pass the test. But we're never really looking beyond that and looking at the specific lessons that history has taught us that we can learn from and apply today. So, there are certain patterns that happens in history and humans, civilization by civilization, follow the same patterns and make the same mistakes every time. So, by learning history, we might be able to break this script and then and not fall victim to certain circumstances because every civilization in the past has really had this period of growth and then decayed and then the civilization dies off. We don't want to fall into that category. We might think that we are, what's the point of looking back 2,000 years because the world is completely different today than it was 2,000 years ago. But what uh, the authors here are saying is that even though, yes, technologically things are very different, the underlying human nature is still the same. As humans, we haven't changed. We're still doing the same shit, but maybe instead of killing each other on the battlefield, we're killing each other in the boardroom. But it's the same stuff, just applied in a different way. Yeah, so we're motives of acquisition of goods, pursuit of sex, overcome the competition, as you said, fighting wars and everything. We've still got the same motives, but we've just got different means of achieving the old mm. motives. So, quite interesting stuff. So, it is, it is a history book uh, and it is compiled down into 100 pages. So, history is infinitely vast so, one thing you can't avoid, which they do note in, in the introduction, is the narrative fallacy. There are so many points of data. You can narrate your own kind of story about what happens in history and this is unavoidable that they say. Yeah, you can pick two or three specific incidents and make your own story out of this and say, hey, this is exactly what's happened in the past. This is what's going to happen in the future. But just by picking those two or three things means you're neglecting 99.9999% of everything else. And you're forming your own narrative. As like the Black Swan said, you can make your own story up based on any facts and figures and confirmation bias and narrative fallacy. But at the end of the day, they've tried to avoid that and as much as possible, admitting though they've still got a little bit of that in them. So, the book's comp- compiled down into different categories or lessons. The first lesson that's said in the book is all about biology and history. So, in other words, you know, what has evolution and biology taught us about human nature and what can we learn from this? We think that as humans, we're distinct from the animal kingdom, but they are letting us know that really we are still animals. We can't avoid that. If we think we go to the zoo and look at all the other animals doing crazy animal shit, really that is us as well. We're still animals, even though we have evolved to, I guess, a high level of cognition, there's still that underlying animal nature in us all. So, yes, this nature is inevitable and we can't avoid some what we are biologically as animals. So, there are a bunch of lessons we can get from this. And the first lesson of biology is that life is competition. So, if we look back at the animal kingdom, they go around eating one and each other without qualm. Humans were not much different. Civilized men consume one another by process of law or power games 
or things like this. So, we are competitive by nature and even in times when we cooperate with like family, community, party, race or nation, they say this is just another means of competition because we're strengthening and cooperating with the group so the group can compete with another group and beat them. Yeah, it's a good way to look at it. You might think, oh, no, I'm not, I'm not really competing with anyone. I'm actually really cooperative. I'm working well with everybody, whether that's your company, whether that's your, your group of friends or whatever uh, political party you align with. You might think, no, I'm just being really cooperative. But really, that's sort of like this mask of cooperation that's actually hiding a, a deeper-seated competition in that maybe you personally don't want to beat another individual, but you want your group that you're cooperating with to to defeat the, the rival group, whatever that may be. So that's the first unavoidable lesson of biology. The second lesson that is really in our DNA is that life is selection. It's a bit of a pain in the ass if you're, uh, if you're at the bottom of the crop because... Unfortunately, not everyone can have everything. Yeah, exactly. If you're no good, you're not going to get the job. Yeah. And if you're not hot and you don't have anything else going for you, you're probably not going to get the, the chick or the dude. Yeah, exactly. That ultimately, like we are in this this battle, this struggle for, for selection and there's so many things in life that where the best rise to the top and the best get selected. So, it is this competition and also this level of selection. So, us humans, we have these ideologies of, you know, putting human beings on some kind of pedestal where every single human being has some kind of rights and they're equal in terms of divinity and all this kind of stuff. But in, t- in nature's point of view, that's not the case. People are unequal and... It is preferable for nature to be unequal so then they can select much easier the ones that are the best so then the other people can fall out of the genes pool in a ruthless <laughs> way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, they say that as much as we can say and write on our pieces of paper that everybody should be equal and everybody should have all of these rights, uh, they, the authors are saying nature really doesn't give a fuck about that piece of paper. Mm, yeah, our utopia is that we have these two rights, freedom and equality as our utopia but unfortunately freedom and equality are actually sworn and everlasting enemies so when one prevails whether it be equality or freedom that means the other one goes down you can't have both in uh even though as much as we want to have freedom and equality so if we want to increase equality say that's one of our one of our two goals equality or freedom in order to stop inequality then we need to feed the poor we need to redistribute wealth to make everybody becoming more equal but the only way to really achieve that is if we have some kind of central body that you know takes the money from the rich and gives it to the poor and redistributes it through this middleman. What we're doing there, we're really violating that idea of freedom because we've taken away the freedoms of everybody. The central body is taken away from the rich. They're redistributing to the poor in order to achieve equality. Okay, so what if we want to increase freedom? If we increase freedom then, if we leave it to run by itself as we see with capitalism and competition, then we're going to naturally rise in inequality. Some people are going to uh, work harder and achieve more. They might have better, uh, more access to resources. They might have more privilege. They might, uh, you know, they might, all these things are building up, which whilst we've got freedom for anybody to do as they please, the gaps uh, in equality are becoming wider and wider. So, yeah, that kind of dismisses that idea that you can have both freedom and equality. So, it's it's more of a spectrum that you swing one way or to the other. And this is the kind of pendulum that's been going down throughout history. And interestingly enough, what they say is that those below average want equality and those above average value freedom. So, if you're below average, you probably want everything redistributed so you get a fairer share of the pie 
And then if you're above average, you want everything to be free and capitalism and you're a capitalist and everything because it means you're going to end up with more. So everyone's just looking out for their own best interest in that case. The way this has played out over history is that those who are conscious of superior ability desire freedom. So those above average value freedom. And in the end, superior ability has its way. So throughout history, the value of freedom has trumped the value of equality. And this has really played out a few times, like, you know, capitalism beating the communism as an ideology through the the Soviet Union versus the, the West and so forth. And the third lesson of biology and history is that life must breed. Nature really has no use for organisms or groups that cannot reproduce abundantly. So the civilizations and so forth that take on the world are probably those with the highest population and birth rate. And we see this today with... You know, countries like China being absolute powerhouses and the next huge developing nation, you know, and a big part of their power is through just a huge dominant population alone. So, they're the three lessons we've, we've learned from biology and evolution and the things we can't avoid, the things that are really in our DNA. The next section we want to talk about is character and history. And the question being, what does history tell us about the effect of a human's character? So, over the last 5,000 years, we haven't changed a hell of a lot biologically from the previous lesson but we have changed a lot in character so this is something that is much more mutable so this comes out in variations in species but things like you know economic political intellectual and all other kinds of innovations and this is all transmitted to individuals and generations by our education systems and our customs and our culture and our traditions and so forth as we face more and more new situations as the world you know, develops and society evolves and we become more and more complex, we require these novel and unstereotyped responses. Like we're facing a brand new situation, it requires a brand new response. And social evolution is at the interplay of custom with origination. So they're saying that here, you know, we need something that's driving the, the culture forward based on our characters. And they, they say that uh, there are these initiative individuals, these great people, these heroes, these geniuses that take their place and form or forge history. They, they drive change forward in history. So when you look back, these people, they form symbols of history, but also they're the ones who drive and change history. So people like, you know, the Wright brothers, we think of planes and so forth. But in each case, timing is everything. And if we think about back to uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book in Outliers, how... Normal book. <laughs> stinker. But uh, he talks about how these big heroes of our world today, like Gates and Jobs and Wozniak and so forth, they were all born in the same generation. So they're only heroes in terms of uh, technology, mainly because their timing of when they were born. So timing is essential in history for characters to come through and be symbols of uh, the big movements. Yeah, as you say, like the the Wright brothers, which is a, another example of that was the time, you know, as you know, the first flight the first powered you know human flight and they became the symbols of that or like say for now like the technology and computers and stuff we see bill gates and steve jobs as the symbols of that so it almost is like this uh, movement in society more generally these big innovations as opposed to the individual themselves and the individual just becomes a symbol of that time so so throughout history there are some of these people who are originals and revolutionaries and have these new ideas which right you know on the surface, it's fantastic. But in reality, out of 100 ideas, 99 
actually going to be inferior to the traditional responses that they're looking to replace. So if you're a revolutionary looking to change things with a new grand idea, you're vital to pushing society forward in large, but the reality is there's probably 99% chance your idea isn't better than the status quo. So at times we need to trust that the status quo is actually there for a reason. It's like thinking about when you're, you know, you're 15 years old or you're 14 years old, you're thinking, why why is my mum letting me eat McDonald's every day, breakfast, lunch and dinner? At that time, you're thinking they're idiots, but uh, she's a bit more wise and uh, has these rules in place for a reason that you don't understand yet. I like it. I like it. That's a, that's a, that's a good example. And it is important not to just fully reject somebody with a crazy new idea, this heretic, this grandiose original person coming to revolutionize a status quo we can't just fully reject their idea because they're wrong and they're going against the status quo we need to consider it but at the same time we can't fully accept every crazy new idea either so they say that whilst the uh, individual crazy original person is vital for changing the culture in, in terms of them bringing a brand new idea the conservative who resists the change and puts it through a, a rigorous process of assessment is also vital for not letting uh, us go too crazy and too wild and eat Maccas every meal every day of the week. So I really like that. The conservative who resists change is as valuable as a radical who proposes it. So if you look at this, say, you know, in the the topic of the left and the right and uh, there's a lot of ideologies on both sides at the moment and not, not a lot of hell of a lot of listening, but they're both vital. So if you think about the idea of global warming and renewable energy, someone who's far left might think might be pro-renewable energy but if they didn't have the right to resist them at all then you know they might just go out there and make get rid of every coal-fired power station in the world and all the baseload power and it'll just be renewable energy but then we might have an unstable grid but if you go the other way and the, if the right person has their way and hasn't have the left to have the tension then we wouldn't be able to um you know evolve to meet the new challenges of global warming sustainable technologies and so forth so it's this left and the right having these ideas and then somewhere in this tension we actually get somewhere in the middle which is much more reasonable so it is good that the old should resist the young and that the young should prod the old because out of this tension comes creative tensile strength and i say it's this basic and secret unity that really creates this movement as a whole yeah, I think this lesson is really important, man. So wherever you fit on the spectrum with your ideas, you got to respect that people who have the opposite idea to you actually have a lot of value to society. And if you had your way completely, then the whole world would be a lot more fucked up than it is now. <laughs> the next section is morals and history. And so moral codes differ and they just as his- history and the environmental conditions evolve and change throughout our time. So in this chapter, they break history down into hunting agriculture and industry so three different periods and quite interestingly enough what we considered the the morals of the time really change and immutable dependent on what part of history it might fall in so if you think back if you think of today if you walk onto the street and uh, chop a guy's head off with an axe you're definitely going against the moral code of today but if you go back three or four thousand years then you're probably the fucking king of that time so back then what would make a person successful is completely different than what it is today. Back then, you needed to be brutal and be able to, you know, wrestle a hyena and, and I don't know, rip its head off, literally, or something. And you might need it to be able to kill a human being on the other side of the tribe. So, this person might be seen as a moral person. As you said then, if you were a murderer today, 
that person wouldn't last two seconds in history. But the other way around, if someone with today's moral compass, like a little weak little bitch, went back to that part of history, uh, they'd get an axe put through their head. So that stage of history where we're hunter-gatherers, you needed to be a brutal demon of a person relative today. The second part of history was when the agricultural revolution really hit. And this demanded a new type of moral compass to get by based on what the times demanded of us. So if you think about back then the family farm, what you really needed was an army of kids running around developing the farm. The family needed to be really tight-knit, so family family values was massive back then. And because you were better off having a whole bunch of kids, uh, it was normal for, say, the, the women of the family to actually start having babies when they were hit maturity or sexual maturity straight away so they'll be hitting pregnancy at 15 16 17 and then again if you compare that to today uh, if someone's 15 16 17 we definitely look at it in a completely different light uh, through our new moral compass that we have today and then as we progressed into the industrial revolution so as we said in you know agriculture was very much about the family and the group and the community the industrial revolution it became much more about the individual so it was less about cooperating with your with your family or your community and much more about you just going out and being the best worker in the factory. So when you become more individual, you can really support yourself. You don't really need mum and dad. So mum and dad lose their authority. You can take care of yourself, but you start hitting economic maturity a little bit later where you can take on families. So that means people start having kids much later. Birth control was much more popular and so forth. And this is a lot closer to like what we have today in that marriage is a lot later, we're having children a lot later uh, and we're really working out for ourselves. We're, I think we're probably in the, the next evolution, obviously the industrial revolution, we've probably gone a little bit beyond there and so we're moving towards the next change, whatever that is. Mm, I found this really interesting that um, morals aren't these universal constants which I've probably mm. always mm. previously thought they were, right? So, they're the morals we have today probably will develop and evolve and change and things we see today as must-dos in the future, they won't be must-dos anymore and there'll be new weird things that we consider moral. So, the next lesson is economics and history. And what they say is history is actually economics in, in action. So, if we look back throughout history at some big moments like the Crusades, the wars of Rome with Persia, all these things were attempts of the West to capture trade routes in the East. So, they were all motivated by economics and money and resources and so forth. Also, the discovery of America was a result of the failure of the Crusades. The French Revolution came about purely because the middle class had written to economic leadership. So, in every case, all historical moments, big ones, are all about our desire for an individual to improve the circumstances and economics. And if no person had this motive to have more resources and so forth, then history would just stagnate and nothing would have really happened. Yeah. So, it's this, you know, this contest among individuals, groups, classes, states, countries for this fuel and this economic power. And what's uh, perhaps a little bit conspiratorial, which we always love, is that, you know, there's, whilst there's leaders that are uh, wanting to rise to economic power and gain more resources... They do that by motivating the masses and you know, stirring up a passion within them to go out and get it. So, there's a really cool quote here. Men who can manage men manage the men who can only manage things and the men who can manage the money manage all. Ooh. So, there's a bit of conspiracy there. So, so, it's really the bankers who are watching the trends in agriculture, industry and trade, inviting the flow of capital, putting the money to work, controlling loans and interest and enterprise and so forth. 
and families throughout history like the Medici of Florence, the Fuggers of Augsburg to the Rothschilds of Paris and London and the Morgans of New York, bankers have really sat at the councils of governments financing wars, popes and occasionally sparking revolution. So what they're saying here, and this is going to confirm all the the, 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 the conspiracists out there, that it really is that the big bankers were really running the world and they're putting over different kind of illusions to rouse up the passion of the masses to achieve the motives of the people who are who are really managing, as it says, managing the people who manage people. Yeah, I think that was cool. So, basically, like the bottom level is if you're a man who can manage things, that's a bottom level. If you can manage men, then you manage the men who can only manage things. But the top of the pile is the people managing the money. Mm. And I think that's pretty sick. And I've been, uh, I fell into an Alex Jones oh, rabbit no. hole recently. <laughs> and, mate, this is everything he talks about, man. George Soros, all the people at yeah. the top of Silicon Valley running everything and using puppets yeah. like Joe Rogan to spread their message <laughs> to the masses. And everyone's got that, um, everyone's got that mate. You know, I've got Vag. Now I've got you. I'm, I'm sucked <laughs> that in. That mate who's really, who just informs you about really what's going down in the world, you know, just to, <laughs> to, to woke you up. So well, mate, <laughs> mate, get woke, man, because apparently uh, the two greatest historians of all time also agree. Yeah. Well, or maybe, maybe I'm just reading <laughs> a bit of confirmation bias there. Mate, you're jumping pretty far <laughs> down the rabbit hole when you're listening to Alex Jones. <laughs> mate, that's the bottom <laughs> of the hole. <laughs> Shit. So again, what naturally happens uh, throughout history and today because of this inequality, naturally, all the wealth kind of flows to the top of the hierarchy and then there's this huge inequality. And when this inequality happens, one of two things actually happens. One, either governments go out there and redistribute the wealth so the poor feel like they're getting their fair share of what's of all the keep, or the masses go out there and fuck everything up and then uh, create some kind of revolution where they actually don't build on wealth. They might even destroy it a little bit. Well, if you think there's like a bit of a balance of, of power in the sense that the, there's a small handful of people that control a lot of the, the money and the, and the economics. So, that's one source of power. And the other source of power is that a large, large, large number of people on the other end who are, you know, almost in poverty effectively. And that's the balance of power, one who's controlling the money and one who's a, a big base of numbers of people. And if that when that tips out of whack, obviously if the the people at the top take too much control of the money, then that's when the masses turn and think we need a bit of this power back, and that's when the revolution occurs. It's interesting. So when the big masses get to the point where they're fired up enough to really cause this revolution, uh, interestingly, that wealth. When you look at what they're trying to redistribute, which is wealth, what they define wealth as is trade and trust in institutions as opposed to accumulation accumulation of stuff, things, and paper money. Mm. So, when the revolution happens, what they do is they destroy the trade and the trust in institutions. So, they actually destroy wealth rather than redistribute wealth through revolutions. Yeah, it's interesting to view wealth through that perspective rather than just the amount of stuff you've got, the amount of money and the amount of resources, but actually the trust in the institutions. And that's sort of obviously how societies run that you know, if you're rather than just the amount of money, if you think, okay, there's a big bank here and they're in control and they're managing everything, I, I trust this institution. If you can go and attack that trust, you don't really have to attack the bank's money, but if you attack their trust, you can really, really deteriorate that organization. So the redistribution happens obviously through taxes, but also having huge inflation, which really devalues the currency and releases all the burden of the debtors. So all the debtors obviously owe all their money to the Rothschilds and the big dogs out there. But when you have huge inflation, it reduces the, the value of their debt. So that means it kind of redistributes the wealth in a sneaky way, which is a good thing. So we want huge inflation. 
not a lot of that going down on the world. I think Ross Scholes are actually now the low interest rates are there. I don't know. Mate, I've never well, met Rothy. <laughs> <laughs> Man, Alex Jones talks about the shadowy cabal, but he also talks about in, he talks about inter, interdimensional child molesters and vampires. Oh, no. So not everything he says is true. Yeah, he says people on the moon, his armies in Mars, mate. I don't know what he's smoking, mate, but fuck, you got to get off the... It's entertaining. you got to get off that bandwagon. Should we get him on? Uh, mate, he's been banned from everywhere. We could... Our podcast could disappear. We'll probably get him on and get shot by the US government no, no, or something. It's, it, I wouldn't mess with it. <laughs> so, that was a section on economics. Another section they talk about is, is socialism. And the struggle of socialism against capitalism is part of the historic rhythm. Yeah, that's it. So, you get all... Naturally, all the, the wealth goes to the top and then... Uh, the idea of socialism is to take all the money away from all these rich trillionaires and help the poor and needy and the homeless and everything. So when you redistribute the wealth, you're really pointing toward the direction of socialism. This is the thing that we see all throughout history. It's obviously prevalent today, but they give us a few examples back through history that it's happened many, many, many times before. One example they show is back in Egypt in 323 BC. So that's a that's a hell of a long time ago, mm. and at that time, all the commerce was controlled and regulated by the state. There was taxes on everybody. They were doing some pretty sick engineering projects. I guess they were building pyramids and sphinxes and stuff, which is which is pretty good. But because the state had control of the money and the commerce, they thought they were doing what they thought was best. They took on some expensive wars, and because they were doing such expensive wars, they raised the taxes because they needed more money to fuel this. And as people started to get more and more taxed, though, they thought, why am I working so much if I'm getting taxed? They were losing a bit of incentive to work. Their agriculture output decayed. They started to go on strikes. And really, there was like this uh, descent in where the, the power, there was this descent where the central powers were losing, I guess, the, the buy-in from the masses. And it wasn't, order wasn't restored until Rome came, came along and took over in, in 30 BC. Mm. So it's it's kind of like this this pendulum that swings where everyone's free and is extremely productive, and then everyone has these social ideals, and then uh, the society will lose its productivity, and then someone else will take over, and things will kind of fall into chaos. So that's what happened in Egypt, and then Rome came in under rule, and then they took over, and they got rid of these socialism ideas and uh, got productive again. But then all of a sudden, socialism came back in AD three hundred and one when they set in these new laws that on the surface were all well-intended. So they had maximum prices and wages for all services. They had, again, extensive public works and this put unemployed to work. They had food redistributed to all the poor. Uh, the state became the most powerful employer. And again, every year by year, the government, the, the size of the actual government rose and the taxes in turn with that rose. And again, people lost their incentive to work and then uh, so then the civilization lost really all of its productivity. I think we can start to see some similar trends today and that the government is getting very powerful and there's starting to be a little bit of disillusionment with the government and, the, and some of the choices they're making. Like obviously, they're, they're borrowing money to invest in infrastructure. You know, there's high pensions, again, taking on very expensive wars that not everybody agrees with. The world debt is absolutely enormous right now and the only way to pay off that debt is to raise taxes and potentially what what's happened throughout history is that eventually the the masses who don't agree with everything the government says and when the government's taking more and more power it could come to a boiling point 
where at the end of the day, things start to tip back the other way. So, yes, what they're really getting at is as the taxes rise to a certain point, everyone's going to lose their incentive to work and then uh, civilization is going to lose its overall productive capacity. So, this is the pendulum that goes uh, back and forth. So, the final lesson we're going to cover from this book is all about growth and decay which is pretty important because every civilization has gone through this period of growth where they become powerhouses. You think about Egypt, Rome and all this, and then they have this period of decay where they decline, decline, and they falter and they're really not with us anymore. So, you know, if we're going to get any lessons from history, this is important because we want to know how civilization, civilizations have decayed so we don't fall into the, you know, civilization cemetery. Yeah, it's, we could easily fall into the same boat. And a few things to that we can expect along the way so errors will agitate the intellectual currents new generations will rebel against the old and pass from rebellion to conformity and reaction experiments in morals will loosen and excitement of innovation may be forgotten so how the whole process of growth occurs it really comes from any challenge or change in the surrounding so we might have new things as civilization that pop up and then as a civilization you need to be able to actually take on this challenge and then if you can take it on, you can actually grow from it and become better. So, you know, it's the analogy is applicable to the individual level as well, obviously, mm. which we've covered the a lot. The way. Exactly right. And in any case, it really comes down to individuals within that society are the ones who really step up and take these challenges on. So that's sort of how the process of growth. And then, okay, well, what are the sources of decay? Well, firstly, a group, you know, there's no brain or stomach of its own. It has to think and feel with the, the members of the group itself. So, we're talking about these, the individuals that are driving the group's action. And if we think about it, it is the leaders, whether they're political or intellectual, that are the ones responsible for meeting these new challenges. So, we saw that in, in growth, you know, we meet challenges, we grow as a result. In decay, we meet challenges and make, do the wrong thing. So, but there's a, a whole bunch of things throughout history where something major has happened and the people in power have made the wrong decision and it's led to decay. Things like you know, rainfall, soil composition, uh, the replacement of uh, free labor with slave labor, the changes in trade routes, uh, tax policies, foreign markets, uh, and you know, imports and exports, and the concentration of wealth. So there isn't any shortage of challenges that we have today. And uh, what I get from this book and, and this chapter especially is that even though we've got these challenges, it can go one of two ways and it does come up with to the individuals in the world. Are we going to decay and decline mm. as a civilization and be no more or are we actually going to grow because of these challenges and become better off because of it in the long run? I think it is easy to think, okay, we've got these challenges and any challenge can lead to either growth or decay and you might think, well, I've got no power, it's not up to me, it's up to the group and it's up to the political leaders and you might think that that's an easy way to absolve yourself of responsibility but what they're saying it really does come down to the individual members of the group that are driving the change not the, the you can't just uh, outsource that to the group as a whole and blame them mm, absolutely so i think the, for me the book is uh it's it's really good man it's it's very dense uh one of our big issues we have with a lot of books it's it's too sparse it'll be 300 pages of bullshit this is almost too dense it goes the other way <laughs> it's 100 pages where you have to reread pages and reread pages and so forth but also in that old kind of language which is at times really hard to get your head around 